My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Dr. Brian Dias. Brian is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Emory University's School of Medicine, and his research seeks to understand how our neurobiology, our physiology, our psyches are impacted by stress and trauma, and how in particular, parental legacies of stress and trauma influence future generations. Brian's work has been featured in a number of outlets, including Nature, uh, on the BBC, and in a list of the 10 most important discoveries of 2014, published by La Recherche magazine. In addition to this amazing scientific work, he's also a remarkable teacher and educator, has been involved with a number of initiatives including the Emory Tibet Science Initiative, which is focused on teaching neuroscience to Tibetan Buddhist monastics, and was recently on a panel discussing consciousness with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Our conversation today is centered on the research that Brian and his team are doing around the remarkable field of epigenetics, which is essentially the process by which genes and our DNA turn on or off and the influencers or the triggers that, that cause those genes to turn on or off. What I find really exciting about this research is the emerging recognition that things that happened to our ancestors, to our parents, to our grandparents, maybe even to their grandparents, and perhaps even further back, although that's my speculation, not Brian's, but, but certainly at the very least, things that happened to our parents and grandparents before we were ever conceived or even a gleam in our, in a, in a metaphorical eye of our parents before they even met, things that happened to them can show up in our DNA. That, uh, that, that these, that these impacts, which can be both beneficial and traumatic, are carried forward through, um, through the DNA and sperm and egg cells that then eventually come to make the embryo that becomes the little source of potential multicellular complexity that is you and I as human beings. There's a wonderful moment where, where Brian describes that as intriguing. And I said, <laughs> you know, this to me, frankly, is mind blowing. This, this recognition that we're seeing this evidence start to show up in the research. And although Brian is very careful not to jump to any outsized conclusions about what the research might tell us, he's also very open to exploring what might be possible for us as a species if we begin to understand these legacies of both intergenerational trauma and also intergenerational gifts. 
the legacies that we inherit and the burdens that we inherit from those who came before us and how we might heal from and let go of that which needs to be healed from and let go of and also how we might embrace the greatest and best of who we are. So this was an awesome conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's get settled in. Hmm. And hear what Brian has for us. Okay. Brian, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thanks so much. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, me too. I have to say there's a part of me that's really excited because when I when I when the the show was conceived, one of the things that I envisioned was having conversations with scientists who are working scientists and researchers who are kind of working on the frontiers of our understanding of, of how we actually work. And, uh, and, and it actually, you're, you're really the first proper scientist to step into the space. So, so it feels like in this moment, a real exciting embodiment of what I envisioned over a year ago when I first started the show and really appreciate you saying yes to the invitation. Absolutely. Yeah. So folks listening in will have heard, I will have pointed towards already in the intro, uh, a number of resources where they can learn more about your work. Uh, and, I, and I hope that this, it, to whatever extent it makes sense for you to explain sort of the, the biological underpinnings of how these things work, I welcome it. And I also just want us to have the conversation that we're here to have, whatever that might be. And, I, and the place that I feel really called to start right now has to do... Um, I'm, I'm finding myself really curious with the moment that you started to tap into this work around intergenerational trauma and epigenetics. Like the, I sense that there is, there are probably lots of places as a neuroscientist you could have gone, but there was something about this work that called you or that, that provoked your curiosity or that surprised you. And I wonder if you could just kind of speak to how you started into this line of work and research. So the journey that I'm currently on is deeply personal to me. And as I was just telling someone, I've been doing science now for more than half my life. Mm. And I finally feel that I've reached a juncture where I am contributing to a scientific question, but also a humanistic question Mm. in hopefully a meaningful way. I grew up in India and... I don't mean for this to be to, to suggest that this only happened in India when I was growing up, but that at that time there was a philosophy that you spare the rod, you spoil the child. And I've unfortunately experienced physical abuse when I was a child, and I've seen other children, friends of mine, also experience physical abuse from caregivers. Uh, who were, to be honest, quite well-intentioned because the adage there was spare the rod and spoil the child. And so they wanted us to be the best versions of ourselves. But unfortunately, that took on a sinister turn by by thinking that the best version of ourselves could only come to the surface uh, with some tough love. Mm. And Mm. so I never set out to study intergenerational legacies of trauma or stress. However, having leaning into the experiences that I had growing up and then a series of scientific meanderings over the years 
we are now studying how legacies of stress perpetuate across generations, how that derails behavior and physiology, and then how might we be able to halt these legacies of trauma and stress from perpetuating across generations. And of course, now being a father and a parent myself, I have a seven-year-old son, a two-year-old daughter. I find that those legacies of stress and trauma are deep and breaking those cycles is, is requires intention and effort every single day. And I feel that Hopefully, some of my work helps me become a better parent, but also allows us to understand how we might break legacies of stress and trauma. Mm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. For those who, who haven't heard the phrase before, spare the rod and spoil, spoil a child, I, I'm understanding that to mean like if you don't use the rod to sort of the stick to kind of drive behavior, then the child will be spoiled. And so that that like this deep belief actually produced some real trauma for you as a young young child growing up. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we're also appreciating now uh, that it doesn't have to only be, of course, physical abuse. Yeah. So in yeah. some monumental studies, one of which is called uh, the ACEs study, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences study, which was conducted uh, in, in collaboration with uh, Kaiser Permanente and the CDC in the late 90s and now has been followed over the years in different demographics. Uh, one has adverse childhood experiences that fall into several categories. Uh, by far, the biggest category that uh, children suffer childhood uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences of is neglect, mm. and but mm. there could also be household challenges where you talk about food insecurity, or you talk about uh, a separation of the caregivers, or you talk about someone losing their job and the economic instability that comes comes about, and all of those are adverse childhood experiences that, uh, even though there's no rod involved unfortunately can have detrimental consequences mm. on the children, mm. how they behave. And then uh, what we think will happen is how those children will then go on to raise their own children, thereby perpetuating their first childhood experiences. Right. Wow. Well, before we kind of dive deeper into that, I want to just sort of honor and celebrate and thank you for kind of naming the ways in which after this, this, Half, half of your life journey into your work as a scientist has produced this emerging alignment around how your work can benefit humanity, but also how your work can benefit you and your ability to be a better parent and to kind of, I hear in you a kind of recognition that as a parent, we can consciously step into these cycles that might otherwise be unconsciously perpetuated and actually do make a choice to be different or to act different or to be with our children in, in a more attentive and intentional way. And that that can actually change their future pretty remarkably. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think any caregiver, parent, uh, appreciates that they have the potential to really sculpt this this being who they've brought into the world or who are they, who they're caring for. And I think that responsibility is, is, is a heavy one to bear. Mm. Uh, and sometimes we, we 
unfortunately sometimes rely on experiences that we have gone through because that's the only thing that we know. Mm-hmm. But in so much as science is teaching us that legacies of trauma and stress can be broken, there are ways to be able to uh, to reach out off that cycle and break it to be able to then change the trajectory about how those uh, how those little beings are actually sculpted and become a different version of ourselves uh, that uh, would would have potentially manifested had we not experienced those uh, those uh, stressors or traumas in our own lives. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, there's something about you use the word potential, and I sense that 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 at the heart of a lot of what you're doing is reckoning with the sort of raw potential of any being and the way that that potential meets not only their reality, but also, and this is this, maybe I want to hear more about what this was like for you when you started to see the research emerge in the ways that it has, but, but also the realities of the people who came before them. So the, the ways in which like me or you as a, an embryo or as an infant are not only shaped by the behaviors of the adults around us, but are also shaped by the behaviors of the adults of those adults when they were just embryos or when they were infants. And maybe even further back in time, you know, that that it could go back to parents, to, to grandparents, that things that happened to our ancestors are happening in a sense to us right now. Right, absolutely. Uh you know, the arc of history, as they say, bends in a myriad of ways. Mm-hmm. And in the context of how we might bear imprints of parental experiences or parental traumas or even grandparental traumas, uh, they take on three forms. So you could have uh, stories that are shared at the dinner table about stressors or traumas that might occur, and that influences the person hearing the story, you or I. Or that could, uh, the, the stressors or traumas could have influenced the parental behavior that you or I received or mm-hmm. someone else received, and that could have ramifications for how we live our lives. Uh, when we were in utero, uh, when gestating as, as fetuses, uh, there could have been stresses or traumas that mom experienced, and that could have, ram- have had ramifications for how we now navigate our lives. And now more intriguingly, we're gaining an appreciation for how sperm and egg might actually bear imprints of stresses or traumas. And when those sperm and egg then unite to form uh, the embryo, and that embryo then has the potential to become the multicellular you and I, then the question becomes, how is that embryo, how does that embryo develop uh, with, the, with the heavy burden of these stressors and traumas? And that might allow for an embryo to, to, to roll down one side of the hill and result in, for example, substance abuse or post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety disorders to manifest much more easily compared Mm. to an embryo that might roll down another side of the hill uh, and an embryo and a a child who gets a supportive nurturing environment. And then that child is buffered from uh, developing anxiety and PTSD and substance abuse uh, because of the experiences that uh, their parents or grandparents might have had, which might have been more nourishing and more more supportive. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, when 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 I was growing up and up until very recently, there was there was the age old discussion about nature versus nurture. And of course, we now know that nature and nurture really uh, are two sides of a coin. They coexist. They interact deeply with each other. And in that interaction, we have the ability to develop as our best selves or our less than optimal selves. Mm. But mm. because of that ability of nurture to interact with nature, even that less than optimal self can become optimal with the right kind of experiences. Yeah, I love that. There's sort of a, and, and we'll maybe get to that. It's, it's like the both end that because we are malleable, both through nature and nurture, we can be impacted by past negative experiences, but also we can be impacted by present moment positive experiences. And I guess by past positive experiences that there's, that there are a lot of forces that, that have the potential to shape us in, a, in one direction or the other. I, I want to underline, I appreciate you sort of using the conservative, like, Oh, this is intriguing. Intriguingly, you know, that, that we see, uh, like from where I said, I'm like, I'm kind of like, Holy shit, this is really wild stuff. Like, just to, just to underline, like, what our parents say to us can influence us, the stories they tell. What our parents do or don't do to us can influence us, right? And I think a lot of people are like, yeah, got it. That's the kind of, like, nurture piece, right? And then there's, like, also what happens to our mom when we're in her body can, can, can do things to us, right? And that sort of also, to me at least, makes intuitive sense, right? Like we're kind of like marinating in their physical physiology as we, as we gestate. But what you're saying really clearly is that what happens to the person who might one day become our mom and what happens to the person who might one day become our dad, that there are, that there are imprints of, of those happenings in the eggs and sperm, in the egg cells and sperm cells that then if they come together, become us. Is that, is that right? Right, absolutely. So what I'm saying is that, again, from a human perspective, we know phenomenologically that this might occur. So what, what was one of the, one of the most, uh, uh, what, what, what is an example of this? So there have been famines and droughts that have occurred across history and one of uh, one of these anthropogenic famines and droughts that occurred was uh, called the Dutch Hunger Winter in World War II. And food was embargoed going into the Netherlands uh, at, towards the end of World War II. And this resulted in uh, caloric consumption plummeting uh, for uh, individuals in the Netherlands. And uh, people resorted to eating tulip bulbs, for example, and caloric consumption had plummeted to about 400 calories a day. Uh, as a result of which, there were babies who were gestating in utero. And what we now know is that those children uh, uh, presented with a higher incidence of obesity, diabetes, and schizophrenia. And then even the grandchildren who were not even conceived at the time mm. are presenting mm. with higher incidences of cardiovascular disease, obesity, and schizophrenia. And so the, uh, the, the question then becomes is how is this happening for someone who's not even conceived at the time to be able uh, to bear the imprint, to be able to, to, to uh, be affected 
affected by this nutritional insult that had happened way back when. And, and one of the possibilities, of course, is that the sperm and egg were affected while an individual was gestating in utero, and those sperm and egg will then go on to form the grand offspring, as a result of which we might have this, this perpetuation of this legacy of stress. Uh, I, I do want to I do want to emphasize that this is a controversial area of research, uh, primarily because in the human condition, it's tough to be able to disentangle what we talked about, mm. which is uh, mm. the social transmission of information. That is how parental behavior might affect uh, the incidences of these diseases, for example, uh, or how environments that someone experiences as an adult uh, influences influences the development of these diseases versus a sperm and egg bearing the imprint of these particular insults. Uh, and so, you know, we have to turn in this case then to animal studies to suggest to us, and these are, you know, studies conducted across the world which suggest that stressors and, and animals all the way ranging from, you know, fruit flies to worms to mice to rats, which suggests that uh, stress stressors that might occur uh, in one generation can have profound influences on sperm and egg in future generations mm. uh, and result in influences in future generations. Now, this is not, you know, we know that sperm and egg can be affected by experiences. So we know, for example, that age, paternal age and maternal age as a mom or as a, as a to-be dad grows older, you accrue certain marks. You, you, your, your sperm and egg uh, have a different signature compared to when we were younger. Mm. And so we mm. know that sperm and egg might be affected by experiences like age. We know that sperm and egg might be affected by experiences like smoking, uh, like alcohol exposure. So we know all of this can occur. Whether that is what allows for particular states to manifest in the offspring or grand offspring, that is a much tougher sell in humans mm -hmm. and a much tougher ask in humans because mm -hmm. it's, it is really tough to go from that ripe embryo, with, with, which has the potential to make the multicellular you and I, and then the multicellular you and I, mm -hmm. because there's a lot that happens in between during development that we don't know the answer to. And there's a lot that could happen in our social environments during that development that could completely buffer all of those detrimental insults that the sperm and egg might have accrued. Right. And so it's more challenging to ascribe that in humans, but we do know that it occurs. And we, of course, know that there, there have been several instances where individuals who were not even conceived at the time of the trauma or the, or the stressor do bear imprints in terms of higher anxiety or the, the, the increased incidence of PTSD uh, development, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And you alluded already to the, to the, the Dutch famine. I know for folks who've watched your TED talk or, or the piece you did on PBS, they'll be aware of some of the studies around Holocaust survivors and descendants of, of, prisoners of war, right? Like, so, so there's, it sounds like with all the provisos you just put in place, there's still a lot of unknown. There seems to be some emerging evidence in, in the human condition that things that happened to our ancestors are showing up in our present day experience. Is that, is that a fair, is that a fair enough statement to say, or is that still, is even that still controversial to say? No, I think I think that's a fair statement to say. So that thing, so detrimental experiences of our ancestors are showing up in our own lives, 
but whether those are perpetuating across generations via sperm and egg versus social uh, transmission, uh, we gotcha. don't know. We don't know the relative contribution of both of those in the human condition. Right. But the, your research is uh, based on the hypothesis that some amount of that ratio between social transmission and sort of epigenetic, like there's some something to do with what happens in, in sperm and egg that is with us today. That's kind of what you're researching. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we yeah. do bear imprints of our ancestors based on what our sperm and eggs bore imprints of related to their experience. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And, and, even that, as, and, go and that may or may not come to the fore based on the social environments that we will then find ourselves in. Mm. Mm. So for so for example, one might have been raised in an environment which was uh, which was nutritionally impoverished, and so sperm and egg might be affected in that scenario. And we know this to be the case in in uh, from animal models. Those sperm and egg could then give the multicellular you and I, and so our physiology may now be set up such that we want to be able to conserve. And, and, and prepare for a rainy day because that sper- sperm and egg are trying to prepare us for what we might see in our own lives. Mm. However, we don't, we don't see that and we see enough calories now uh, to, uh, to, to sustain us. And so one might not need that information that that sperm and egg gave us. But now guess what? We might go into a situation as we go through our lives where we find ourselves uh, in an economically unstable position and that bounty full of food now disappears and we go into a nutritionally impoverished state, our, our physiology will remember that and it's lurking under the surface to be able to help us in some ways. Wow. Right? Wow. And so that that's the possibilities are endless. It could go both ways. It could be detrimental or it could also be positive. I just gave you the positive version of it, but you could also think of a scenario wherein if your body is 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 remember wants to remember or has been set up to remember that things were nutritionally scarce now you find yourself around the mcdonald's and the and and the other fast foods and the bountiness in the world with respect to food now there's a mismatch in that and now you might actually develop obesity cardiovascular disease at a higher incidence because your body was was saying something else to you before based on what sperm and egg and social environment allowed for the manifestation of Jeez, it's such a complex web that that you're navigating and untangling around these influences. And you you sort of spoke a bit to a question that I've been sitting with. Like I'm wondering, and I and I, I often have a hard time not kind of anthropomorphizing evolution, but I'll try try not to. Like there there has there there's uh, the assumption that based on my limited sort of armchair understanding of evolutionary biology is that there would be some adaptive benefit to this capacity to transmit information, let's say about a scarcity of food to a descendant. Right. And I wonder, and and you sort of started to speak to that. It sounds like that would then potentially enable that descendant to be more biologically equipped to deal with a scarcity of food than someone who is born purely into abundance and then suddenly found themselves in scarcity. Is that a fair fair summation of that? 
possible? I think that is a fair summation of that, of what we just discussed. However, there's, you bring up, you bring up a point about in, in that ability to, to, you know, buffer the next generation or be beneficial to the next generation, we often focus on all the negatives that come with it as well. And so our focus has been on the negatives because that's what we want to ameliorate. And I think that's a worthy pursuit. But I think we shouldn't uh, lose sight of the fact that there might be beneficial aspects as well to this. And so again, animal work, uh, uh, research using animals has shown that there's a behavioral flexibility that comes about because of stressors that paternal or or maternal mice experience. And so, uh, you know, there is, there are silver linings here, but it's tough to, to look at those silver linings when uh, the sky is completely uh, gray in all Mm. other parts. And mm. so that's mm. the challenge for us to try and uh, to try and brighten up the sky while holding on to those silver linings as well. Mm. Mm. And when you say that's the challenge for us, do you mean for you and your researchers? Do you mean for us as a, like as a species? Where do you on what level of sort of do you see the, this work happening around helping us recognize this is this is sort of fact or at least as best as we understand it, there's both social transmission and kind of epigenetic influences pre pre social transmission and often we can see the negative effects of that the tr- the trauma the intergenerational trauma that that comes through but i also hear you speak to like there are intergenerational gifts that come through or benefits that could come through that we could actually create conditions where where our grandkids could benefit from things we did as parents to our little children before before our grandkids are even a possibility in the world, right? We're raising a three-year-old with our grandchildren in mind, right? Like I'm hearing some of that in what you're saying. Is that right? That would that would that would presuppose that there was a formula to this entire okay. complexity. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, yeah. there's not that there isn't a formula because every day, every moment in a child's life is an entity unto itself. And mm. so mm. As a parent, I could engage in what I would consider, you know, whatever the best parenting practices are. But I have no control, unfortunately, then when my child goes to school and gets bullied Mm. or when my child Mm. goes to college and suffers heartbreak and there's no one there to support him or her. Uh, And how my child then responds to that is anyone's guess. Mm. I, one can hope as a parent that one has equipped one's child with the social emotional skills uh, to be able to to be able to withstand those pressures of being a child of growing into this world. But we don't know how biology is going to react, and so there are so many unknowns that it's difficult to be formulaic about this. Mm. And so all we can do is engage in whatever we think those best parenting practices best caregiving practices, best uh, best social fabric practices to create a tightly knit community are. And then, unfortunately, the chips fall as they may. And you just hope that by having bolstered, bolstered that entire ecosystem to support the child or the children in that ecosystem, mm-hmm. that when mm-hmm. the chips fall, they'll fall, they won't fall too hard and, and the child will be able to pick up the pieces and build themselves mm-hmm. up again. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. I noticed there's a part of me that's like, okay, Brian, so like, just tell us what, 
tell us what to do so that this doesn't happen anymore. We are, we've got it. We see this. Let's just intervene, make sure it doesn't happen. But of course, it's a lot more complex than that. But I guess what I hear in your call, what's evoking for me is this kind of call to be like, as we start to notice this effect, uh, we can get drawn towards the really sort of pretty striking, tragic stories of intergenerational trauma. And they're here and they're with us and we should clearly not ignore those stories. And then the legacies of, of genocide and slavery and war and famine that exist in our recent or distant past or even in the current present moment that are shaping the future. I hear you saying like, yes, all of that is true. And there are also, whether we're aware of it or not, po positive, uh, nourishing, nurturing forces at play in our histories that also carry through with us. And although we can't kind of like perfectly dial the formula to ensure the absence of one and the presence of another, that we're just receiving both the gifts and the curses, for lack of a better word, or gifts and the burdens maybe of our ancestors through through not only social transmission but our biology. Is that is right? That right, right, right. Yeah. But 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 we, we what we can also do is we can lighten those burdens by putting into place social initiatives, practices, ecosystems that that mm. that will allow mm. for us mm. to lighten those burdens as as we go with it so mm. for example you mm. talk about you know the, the the legacies of trauma associated with genocide with war with with slavery whatever systems are in place that have perpetuated those there's enough of a malleability in the biology this is what we do know that there is a malleability mm. that our biology can change and so by putting into place systems that break down for you know break down those structural barriers to progress, that structural infrastructure that has perpetuated these legacies, our biology will respond. Mm. And therein, mm -hmm. uh, those silver linings are just going to leap from cloud to cloud when they do, and there'll be many more silver linings to be able to celebrate and hold on to if we can break those, break those infrastructural barriers down. And so... That's what we need to be able to hold on to. We need to appreciate that, yes, there, there are all these legacies, but, but we, can, we, can, we can break them. We can, we can break cycles of legacies that exist, and we can do that in two ways. We can create social programs. We can create ecosystems within our own communities that will allow our biologies to respond and break down the stressors that come with those legacies. But then we also have to talk a lot about agency. And mm -hmm. so those two things have to go together, uh, which is to say that you put in the initiatives in place, give people the agency and work towards rowing in the same direction towards coming out of uh, the storm, so to speak, and seeing all of those silver linings up in the sky. Mm. 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 Thank you for that. Yeah, that uh, really resonates with me. Appreciate you clarifying that. I wonder, as you speak to that, and I sense you're someone who's really intentional about kind of keeping your researcher hat on and not drawing too strong conclusions, and I really honor that. But I also even hear in what you're saying, you are drawing some conclusions around like, look, the the as far as we know at this moment, based on the, our understanding of these different vectors and the way they shape us, we can actually create social ecosystems 
that invite our our physiology, our biology to respond in new ways, sort of maybe not regardless of the past, but actually in a way very much informed by the past. And maybe we can make that more specific. I, I, you know, like if you're working with refugees of, of a war, right, that, that you would think about what will those people, their children, and maybe even their grandchildren need if they come to a new community to feel welcomed, to feel like they belong, to feel that they have that they're safe, uh, that they have access to, to education and food and kind of there's all of these things that you could think about that would potentially shift the experience of peoples who've gone through a really terribly traumatic experience or their kids, you know, who are, or, or descended from people who've gone through that experience. Is that, is that to put a bit of a finer point on it? Is that right? Like this idea that we can be aware of the burden or the tragedy and then think about this, the sort of counterbalance to that on the social side? Oh, absolutely. I don't think we would ever want to forget the burden that has been placed upon uh, individuals and generations, because in in remembering those burdens, we can lighten them and move forward mm. as a mm. community, as, as, as humanity. And so you're absolutely right. It's about remembering where we came from, but also knowing where we want to go and and putting into place systems that will allow us to carry each other on our on each other's shoulders mm. and move us by leaps and bounds towards mm. that. Mm. And so I love the fact that you brought up uh, you know uh, the the refugee crises along around the world because there yeah. is a xenophobia, of course, that yes. yeah, that that is just that spreads like wildfire across the world. And, you know, I see it when I travel around the world. I mean, people, you know, uh, I have my own share of stories to share about profiling both in the United States, but across, uh, but across the world as well. And I think it comes from, you know, two places. It comes from a place of people thinking that resources are scarce, which they are. And so if they're scarce, then everyone wants to hoard things for themselves. And they think that if other people come in, they're not going to get a piece of that pie. And so there's there's an economy of scarcity that drives that. Uh, and and there's, But the antidote to that is to also think about the shared humanity and the interdependence that all of us have uh, and realizing that for someone coming into another country, they have the same hopes, aspirations, and dreams for their children as parents who live yeah. in that country have. Yeah. Uh, but but that's that's tough to reconcile with an eco- with the economy of scarcity that I talked about. And so it's about trying to put systems in place that educate uh, individuals about what the traumas were, and then then allow for an appreciation that everyone is in this together comes at it from with the same goals aspirations and dreams that uh that the existing infrastructure has and trying to build upon that infrastructure but of course that takes intention that takes uh effort and that takes money and uh, uh, and a lot of determination and and all of those uh you know are are sometimes in short supply yeah this is totally, I'll speak for myself and you don't have to endorse this conclusion, but I would, I would go so far as to say that, that the, the scarcity economy is itself both a product of and a producer of trauma, 
Um, and just to like sort of as one, one random example of that, I've been doing some deeper exploration to something called regenerative agriculture, which is sort of a, an approach to agriculture that invites biodiversity, that, that sort of invites native species to grow in the lands. And, and there are examples all over the world of people taking literally desert land and in the period of 15 to 20 years, revitalizing it so that food and can grow and animals return and, and livelihood returns. And so in a sense, that is a, there's desert there. There's no resource. There's no food here. <laughs> we don't got anything. But also this sort of beautiful ingenuity and connection to nature that, that allows the, the planet to start to actually regrow in a way that regenerative agriculture strikes me as sort of a, the anal analogous antidote, like, hey, scarcity economy, actually there is, there is more here than we say there is. And it's sort of like a healing that happens. And I, and I hear in that, like what you're saying, an, an opportunity for us to say, instead of stay out, stay away, which hurts, certainly hurts the refugee who has nowhere to go. But, but I would also argue it, it also hurts us because we're telling ourselves in that message that we don't have enough and that we start to like that. We, then we're now passing that on, whether through biology or social transmission, that message to our, our kids and our grandkids, we don't have enough. Right. And so I just sort of like that story, that belief that there's not enough seems to be a real source of uh, collective trauma. And I wonder, you know, to the extent, I'm just curious to hear how that's landing with you to the extent you feel kind of comfortable playing with that question of, there's, I guess you're, as you're speaking, you're invoking all of these kind of cultural social questions for me. And I know you're not a, I know you're not a, a, a political scientist. You're, you know, you're a neuroscientist, but I wonder like how you play around those edges of, of where this starts to have implications for us culturally and socially. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think where, where, where the two dovetail together and yes, I'm not a cultural and social scientist and I, I, I will never masquerade to be one. And so I want to, I want to be very clear about that. But what the neuroscience does show is that the brain has systems in place, unfortunately, for an us versus them. Yeah. And so all it takes is for conditioning, be that, you know, uh, politics, be that sport at some level, be that uh, religion on other levels. Uh, we're all in, in some ways born with the same set of machinery, but then that machinery is acted on in different ways by forces around us. Mm. And so I make the point that there are really elegant studies in children that talk about how using puppetry and visual arts, for example, mm. how there's a, a sense of fairness and morality and, and justice as early as three to six months of age. And then it wow. appears that, that, that society, as a society, we condition uh, ourselves to not be that anymore. And we condition ourselves not to be that exactly because of what you said. We say that there is a scarcity. If someone else gets something, I won't. And then that is just playing into our biology because we have uh, the, the cellular and molecular machinery in our brain and the, and the real estate in our brain, which says, I perceive someone as the other. If I'm not going to get anything, I'm just going to go uh, uh, 
I, I'm going to be extremely active, and then that brain region will will manifest, will drive the aggression, will drive the xenophobia, for example, that we see, and from there comes all of the other ills that we've talked about. And so I can see how the cultural forces uh, shape uh, our behavior, but through our biology because we have the machinery which it can then exploit to be able to uh, then manifest in those behaviors that we talked about. Right. Yeah. Like I'm struck with kind of without applying moral judgment to it, there's the way in which we're wired is really remarkably responsive and adaptive that, that like both within a single lifetime and also across a few generational lifetimes, there's this incredible ability to respond to the environmental realities and adapt our behavior and our social structures to meet that. But that, that sort of feature also sounds like it can become a bug because it doesn't sound like it's very good at necessarily distinguishing between actual reality or in perceived reality, or maybe it's more like complexity. Maybe it's sort of like when we, when social structures were, were simpler, it was easier to know what, what the right thing to do is. And now we're like in these incredibly complex global system. Is it true that there's not enough? If, if, I mean, if suddenly a billion refugees came to America, what would actually happen? No one really knows the answer to that. Right. And so there's just this kind of way in which it's, it seems to me what you're describing is this adaptability we have, at least in this current moment is, is responding to a lot of ambiguity with some best guesses or some sort of like, you know, like scarcity. Okay. We need more scarcity behavior because it seems like we've got skipped with it and that spins off. And then someone else is like, no abundance. Look, we can regrow the planet and that spins off. And there's sort of all of this kind of uh, noise in the system right now. Is that, I mean, I'm wondering what that evokes for you. So, so what that evokes for me is a few things. One is I want to pick up on the word wired because I, I had to correct myself because I was going to say we are all wired with the same machinery, but when we use the word wired out in the public, studies have shown metaphorically that there's an element of stat- staticness, that there's an, there's an immutability mm. to that. Mm. So, so to not use the word, I try and not use the word wired and blueprint and, ha- and hardwired into the system because uh, that suggests that there's an immutability, that, that, that there's, it, it, there's, a, there's an inability to change that. Yeah, that so even evokes I, certain behavioral responses. People are like, oh, we're wired. We're, we're immutable. Exactly. So that's this. Absolutely. Is, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And okay. so the way I like, and I, and I want to pick up on that other word that you talked about, which is noise, because that ability, that noise, that variability is actually a boon for us because we can, we can try and get a lot more signal from that noise in different ways. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me, let me try and reframe it. And, and, and I've alluded to this metaphor in some of the talks that I've given, but we're all born with the same book of life for the most part. And you and I, our books of life are different because you, your book of life has been read one way, my book of life has been read another. And so there is the signal from all of that noise. So say, for example, your book of life was only, only pages one, three, five, and seven were, were needed to make the, the, the person that you are, but my book of life were two, four, six, and eight. And mm. so the question then becomes that was the signal from all of that noise because the mm. pages that were not read became that noise. But now guess what? Maybe your book of life and my book of life would be much richer if David Attenborough with his baritone voice yeah. came and read pages two, four, and six for you and pages one, 
three and five me. Yeah. And then that brings up a, a signal uh, from that so-called noise that, you know, makes us even better versions of ourselves. Mm. So I want us mm-hmm. to think of, think of the ability for that noise to actually be a boon and for us not to think about hardwiring or wiring or innateness, but the ability to edit our books of lives very differently such that we're constantly uh, changing the meaning of our lives based on what pages are being read, how they're being read, uh, when they're being read. Mm. Mm. Such a beautiful metaphor. Thank you, Brian. You know, I'm not a, I don't identify with a particular religion, um, but there is a phrase I saw on a sign outside of a church near where I live that really, that, that to me connects to what you're describing. And the phrase was simply, God is still speaking. And if we just sort of replace God with the universe or with, with the planet or whatever word you want to put there, that's what I hear in you. It's not like, hey, here's the book. Hey, here's the blueprint. Hey, here's the map of the genome. A fait accompli. Good luck. But rather to say, we are all emerging out of these incredibly dense webs of interconnection, uh, family, friendship, uh, neurobiology, environmental pressures, like all of this stuff. And as a result of that, we have this within us, this innate ability to look out at the complexity and see patterns and, and take in those patterns and continue to learn and grow as opposed to just saying like, Oh, this is it. This is all I can see. So this must be it game over. So I just right. appreciate, like I hear you saying like the book of life is still speaking. David Attenborough is still reading. If you want to listen, you know, like I just appreciate that the energy of that. Oh, absolutely. And I think, and I think in that ability to, read our books of life to edit them to to erase certain parts uh differently and we achieve all of this through epigenetics which is this phenomenon where we have within us readers writers and erasers the equivalent of things that will highlight our books of life and and our environmental experiences can read certain parts of the book differently they can uh, rewrite certain parts of the book they can remove certain highlights they can put in white out somewhere uh, therein lies that ability to bring more signal and and uh, from that noise that you were talking about. Mm. And in mm. that ability, uh, we have the potential to write, rewrite the books of lives, not only of ourselves, but our friends and family, our ecosystems. And that is the challenge, you know, as as a neuroscientist and, and a scientist, we can give you mechanism about how this occurs at the molecular level, at the cellular level. But if we are to really get a change in society, it's going to come from a more community level approach. And, and that community level approach uh, is, is, is going to work its way through all of the things that we talked about with epigenetics, with changing parental behavior, with, with allowing for children to feel supported and nurtured as they become the best versions of themselves. Uh, but it's, it's it's going to be a tool by which we can also uh, try try and check if our social initiatives are working in some mm. ways. Mm. Mm. Amazing. So as you um, sit with the reality of your research now, Brian, what what for you is the next frontier? Like, where are you directing your energy and intention as you go deeper into this work? What questions are you asking? What's what's driving your energy and curiosity at this moment? So right now we have a 
a little bit of a mismatch in the field with being able to predict outcomes at a population level, but not at an individual level. Mm -hmm. So we can take a group of individuals and say, statistically speaking, this group of individuals might bear the imprints of a particular stress or a trauma much more than an in, than this group of individuals. So what do I mean by that? Let's go back to that uh, adverse childhood experience study. We could we could we could say that children who have a lower number or a lower ACEs score, so ACEs is adverse childhood experiences score, uh, uh, they will they will bear the brunt of a particular catastrophic event, trauma, stressor. Uh, if they have a lesser ACEs score, they will bear that brunt much lesser compared to a group of children who have a higher ACEs score because maybe there was a lot of neglect or there were household mm-hmm. challenges, mm-hmm. etc. So but a high un- score means you you've just dealt with a lot of adverse childhood experiences. Absolutely. Neglect, adverse, abuse, whatever those things Whatever might be. it is, whatever it Low is. Low score so, means you've been in a, a, a less adverse environment. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. And yeah. so one could make one one could statistically then the statistics show that you could you could predict at a population level which groups of children will bear the imprints of those of those mm. experiences mm. in their own physiology in their behavior in the delinquency that we might we might we might uh, measure in schools the the test scores etc but what we cannot do is go within that group and predict as well which child even within that because there's going to be as you say you 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 use the word noise but we 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 would say variability mm. because there's going to be a spread of children not not every child who has an adverse childhood who has a high aces score might bear the might bear the highest brunt there might be children who might not bear the, the mm-hmm. brunt of that and mm-hmm. we want to understand why that is and we want to be able to predict how that happens and, and you so even that, have some outliers i imagine people who have a high a score and yet don't display any of like they somehow which, still are yeah absolutely you would not you or whatever abso- absolutely and so we would want to really really try and understand how that occurs and and how can we predict that and that's more challenging to do with things like the mm-hmm. adverse childhood experiences more neuropsychiatric disorders like anxiety and depression and PTSD uh because uh because that it, it that there's we know less about the biology and the neurobiology and you can you you have to compare and contrast that i think with something like cancer where you can profile the tumors that 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 uh, researchers work with you can profile uh, groups of people and they and they cluster a little more than people that than for example signatures of neuropsychiatric disorders mm. and so and mm. so what what's consuming us in the space is really thinking about who is going to bear the imprint of a trauma or a stressor uh and when we can, who can we identify those individuals so that we can then go into what is called precision medicine? And so we mm. know now that there's precision mm. medicine with respect to cancer. You can profile an individual's tumor and then tailor one's treatment towards that individual. You can, And so we would really like to be able to do that for some of the things that we've been talking about, some of the mental health states that we've been talking about. But it's it's much more challenging to do when we don't know who is going to bear the imprint, mm. uh, who is going to... And so, and so, going from a population-based approach to an individual approach is, is, I think, one of the frontiers that we're going to be grappling with for a little while. Wow.
what and what do you sense might be possible in the world, Brian, if if you start to make headway in that research and begin to to map some of this at individual levels as opposed to population levels? I think the I think the possibilities are endless. So if one can do that with some level of fidelity, you would not have to you you could economize who you where who when and with whom you intervene. And so not all the children who 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 might have had the high ACEs score you might you you might want to attend to with whatever interventional programs one might want to think about and and social scientists and intervention scientists can, uh, think about deeply uh, about the, about uh, being able to tailor their approaches and so you, you you might you might save you might be able to put your money you you might be able to put your money where you have the highest rate of return on that mm. investment. Mm. Uh, you could also then, and we know this for a fact, that the best learning, the be- the best mentoring happens with w- within a community. And so you could then take children who might have a high ACE score, but actually don't bear the brunt of that and pair them in a buddy system with children with a high ACE score, but mm. do bear. And they mm. learn from each other and there's that mm. agency. And so the possibilities there are endless in what you could try and do. One also has to be, unfortunately, this is where the challenge is, that all of this is a moving target. Mm. And so Mm. just what happens, you know, as a child develops, just because they might not bear the brunt at age five doesn't mean that when they get into high school, they won't bear the brunt. Mm. And so we don't, that's the Mm. challenge for us. We don't know when these things will manifest. And Mm. so... You know, the, the the argument there then is to have our social initiatives in place such that we're putting our foot on the accelerator uh, 24 hours a, a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And that's tough to do for, yeah. you know, years and years and years on end. And so there has yeah. to be a collective responsibility where that baton can be handed off to different people at different times. And that starts from within the community, within, you know, b- between the children with mentoring. And we can do that if we have some precision-based approaches. Wow. Got it. I'm aware um, we're coming up on our time. I think we might have time for one or two more threads to pull on here, Brian. Um, I'm aware one that we haven't touched on that to me is suddenly feeling relevant and I have to kind of see why it's feeling relevant, but I think it has something to do with what you just said, that you also have experience teaching neuroscience to, for instance, Tibetan uh, monks and we might put them in a larger category of kind of contemplatives, people who are not scientists, but who are engaging with questions of the human condition um, and how we relate to suffering and how we relate to existence and kind of these big questions that don't necessarily have clear answers, but have huge implications for our daily life for those who slow down to pay attention to them. And I just sort of, I guess, I think the reason I'm noticing this and surfacing it now is because I'm aware that there's kind of a there's kind of a catch 22 here in that, like, let's say I'm the person who suddenly has this information that like I could actually do person specific uh, mental health interventions to support you and to support this other person. And like, I have at that, my disposal that awareness, but I'm a deeply hurt or suffering person myself, or I'm deeply caught up into some sort of pattern of thinking or behavior that's producing harm and suffering I could imagine myself misusing or either intentionally or or unconsciously misusing 
that information to intervene in ways that produce more suffering as opposed to, to less. And so there's kind of like a mindfulness or a, uh, uh, a consciousness that feels really important to have when we're engaging with these deep questions of uh, supporting individuals and, and supporting populations. And I wonder to, to how that's, how is that, do you, does that resonate with you? And how is that true for you? This sense that it's important not just to have the science and the technology, but also the kind of mindfulness or mindset to, to use the science and technology skillfully. Oh, I think it's extremely important. And for that, I think one has to take a page out of how scientists have dealt with bioethical conundrums that have uh, appeared across scientific history. And so uh, for those who uh, you know, are listening, the the Nobel Prize, one of the Nobel Prizes this year went to Dr. Jennifer Doudna and Dr. Emmanuel Charpentier for their uh, discovery of CRISPR. And, and, mm. and CRISPR mm. is this technology which allows one to edit genes uh, as one wants to with a certain element of ease and versatility that was that was uh, not not available to us scientists before but as was done when recombinant dna engineering became uh came on the scene in the 1970s uh the the thought about how one wants to responsibly use CRISPR, how my, how one might harness the the conversations that we're talking about and the power of maybe precision-based approaches that might come to the fore as technologies progress, those are conundrums that are best solved as a collective mind. Mm. And so one wants to be part of networks that allow for us, that, that will hold a mirror to ourselves and our work that will that will allow for us to do our work uh, with uh, the noblest of intention, but in an in an ethical and responsible manner, and and hopefully that mirror, uh, staring into that mirror, will 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 allow for us to do that. And so mm. I I would just think as scientists that we and, and we do this as scientists all the time. We are parts of networks that allow for us to have healthy debate and discussion uh, to try and move us closer to the truth, whatever that truth is, in again a responsible and ethical manner. And so the reason I bring that up is because I'm reading this book called The Code Breaker, written by Walter Isaacson about Dr. Yeah. Jennifer Doudna. And uh, there's, there's, there's a rich uh, conversation there about how uh, the collective mind of scientists actually put moratoriums or put the brakes on certain technologies because we didn't know how we could use them or they, that they might be used in a manner that is uh, less than ethical. And so I would just say that the, the collective mind is where uh, that sense of morality, that sense of judgment, that sense of, of responsibility sometimes needs to come, uh, needs to be, needs to hold us accountable. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thanks for like really hitting it right on the nose with my kind of meandering question. I think that's what it comes down to. There's a real sense of, I hear both, I hear in your work and remarkable possibilities for our species in the decades and, and generations to come. And also this risk of misuse or misapplication. And it, it does come down to this deeply ethical question, which I sense in, what, in your response, like, there's not one arbiter of that, but rather many, many people who are deeply committed to advancing these technologies and these understandings, also taking the time and energy 
to explore the implications of those technologies and those understandings. And it sounds like it sounds like those networks are actually uh, at least as, at least in some places already in place that there are people who are not only doing the research like you, but are also having conversations about what are the implications of this research and what, what might it mean for us if we, if we just put it out in the world without thinking about those implications. Oh, absolutely. There are, there are many gatekeepers for how we scientists will put out information into this world and how that information can be used. And I think, I, I think, you know, people outside of the scientific community need to realize that we're extremely thoughtful, diligent individuals who want to contribute to society and what might be perceived as flip-flopping. And, and I think that, mm. that that is a good mm. word to use these days, flip-flopping. When we scientists flip-flop, we don't really flip-flop. We're actually taking in more data and then and then coming up with a new interpretation of that. And by definition, then that new interpretation might change the message that we're putting out. And, and, and the general public should be okay with that because that's how we're going to move closer to the truth in a responsible, ethical, safe manner. And only in, in that uh, iteration of truth seeking and truth telling can we can we actually become the best version of ourselves which is what i keep coming back to mm. Mm. here's to the journey of iteration and truth seeking thank you brian i wish you know i feel like there's a whole another conversation we could have about the gaps between what's actually happening in science and and how how we we in the public perceive what's happening in science and the and the disconnects and, and also some of the ethical ownership that that folks in the media who are attempting to translate the two have in that in that process. But I just for one really want to say thank you for uh, in your own really authentic, generous, and and measured way stepping into this space of speaking to the public about some really wondrous and important research that you're involved in while also helping us understand what's possible if we if we allow this research to continue and really step in and, and allow, like you say, create the conditions, the ecosystems for all of us to be our best selves. So thank you for doing both. Thank you for doing the research and speaking to the importance of it. It's a really, it's a gift. Thank you. This was a delight. Yeah. Is there anything else you feel called to say before, before we close today? Okay. Good. Wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, folks listening in, thank you. Uh, please do watch Brian's TED Talk and, and his piece on PBS. And uh, and if there are any other resources that come to mind later, Brian, that you want to share, I'll make sure to include them in the show notes. Otherwise, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Andy. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, 
and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever. <laughs>